to talk about how worship happened in the New Testament. Uh, we, we talked about the synagogue last week. Um, so this week we're going to move toward how do they actually worship in the New Testament? How do they talk about worship in the New Testament? Ah, but before we do that, book recommendations. I'm always recommending you guys these big fat books, these expensive books that'll, that'll put you out a lot of money. Uh, I think it was time for a change. So what I have here is two little books. Um, they are from Crossway has, is doing this series called Crossway Short Classics. And basically just for a few dollars you can get a, a little book of sermons. Or uh, in this case right here we have Martin Luther's book, The Freedom of the Christian, a new translation. Uh, I am just all about getting new translations of older books if the older translations are hard to read. Um, I don't recall struggling to read The Freedom of the Christian by Martin Luther in the previous translation, but I know this, that, that this is really easy to read, and this is really a fantastic, a wonderful book. So I'm just going to pass this around, let you take a look at it. And in these books especially, if, if you see this and you want to borrow it, just borrow it. Um, these books are, I got them for free. So you are very welcome to just borrow and read. Pass that around. And this is a book of selected sermons by someone named Lemuel Haynes. Does anyone in this room know who Lemuel Haynes is? The fact that no one in this room knows who Lemuel Haynes is is proof that you should check this out. Lemuel Haynes, Lemuel Haynes was the first African-American man ordained to ministry in the United States of America. Uh, he was a minister at a church in Connecticut. It was a mixed-race congregation. And you know what? All of the biographical stuff about Lemuel Haynes is ultimately unimportant because what you really come to preaching for is good ministry of the word. And that's what you find with Lemuel Haynes. He's a really responsible preacher. When the pandemic was going on, I actually read uh, some, some stuff from Lemuel Haynes specifically about uh, pandemic, about sickness, and I found it very profitable. Uh, his sermon on that is not in here, but still, check Lemuel Haynes out. He deserves to be better known. One of my friends in Mississippi was a man named Caleb Kangalosi. Oh, by the way, they asked me to ask you guys to come forward more, like the first five rows. So I hate to ask this, but if you're in the back rows, if you could come forward, it'll help them get the table set up while we're talking. And the power. And the, also, the, as Benjamin says, the power is up towards the front, really. Um, but anyway, check out Lemuel Haynes. See if these sermons might be of interest to you. Uh, but my friend Caleb Kangalosi, he has something called Log, Log Cabin Press, I believe is the name of it. And for years, I think he was the only person publishing sermons from Lemuel Haynes. And now Crossway's on, on the, the bandwagon as well. So getting the word out about Lemuel Haynes. So back to what I was setting us up for and then stopped on the spot. Um, New Testament worship. We talked about the synagogue. We talked about um, what it was like going into a synagogue service, the sort of features of the service, what worship would have been like, the sort of things that the New Testament Christians are grabbing onto and using as they're practicing their own worship. And let's talk then about the New Testament. We, we sort of ended by, by, by giving a nod toward Jesus. And now I want to talk more about Jesus. How did Jesus worship? Jesus worshiped, and by the way, I'm not, this is not exhaustive. He probably worshiped in other places too. But in the New Testament, we know this, that Jesus worshiped. First, we want to, I want to talk about the fact that he worshiped in the temple. Jesus worshiped in the temple. Uh, we know that he was brought to the temple as an infant. 
We don't have an indication whether he offered sacrifices, uh, but we do know that his parents gave the offering of a poor Israelite in Luke 2.24. So we know his family was poor. We know that they gave offerings in the temple. Um, We know that he worshipped in the temple during his ministry. We know that he made repeated trips to Jerusalem. When he was in Jerusalem, he worshipped in the temple. Um, We know that he is, from Luke chapter 10, we know that he was present for the Feast of Tabernacles. We know he was present for the Feast of Dedication. Um, We also know from Jesus' words and actions that he loved the temple. We know that he loved the purity of the temple. He cleansed the temple twice, once at the beginning of his ministry, once at the end of his ministry. Um, Jesus loved the temple. We also know that Jesus worshipped in the synagogue. Um, The synagogue comes up 22 times in the gospel accounts alone. Jesus participated in the synagogue services. Uh, He would have done the recitations along with everyone else. He would have sung the Psalms with everyone else. Uh, Luke 4, 16 says that it was his custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Um, So what does that mean that it was his custom? It means that he went. I'm not, I don't want to say every single time that he had a, he, He would have gone every time he had a chance. He would have been a faithful Jew in that sense. Um, We also know that Jesus preached during the synagogue services. He does it in Matthew 4. He does it in Mark 1, Luke 6, John 6, and John 18. So he is, when he has opportunities, he's preaching during the synagogue services. Um, And we talked about one of his sermons already in the synagogue last week. Um, Let's talk about Jesus' teaching on worship. Um, By the way, nothing comprehensive here. We're getting very basic, and then we're going to keep going. Um, Jesus, first of all, taught the disciples to think of the temple as something that was temporary. He taught them to think of it as something that was temporary and to see (coughs) see the worship in the synagogue as something that he himself embodied. So even as they're in the temple, he wants them to think of himself, right? They're in the temple. They're marveling at and looking out at everything. And what does he say to them? Where does he immediately go while they're marveling at this building and all of the bricks and how tall it is? What does he say to them? He says, abolish this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. And he's talking about the temple of his own body. So even as they're walking through this place and they're thinking about this building, he wants them to think about him. He just immediately just takes them from here to himself, Um, which is also Stephen's theme in his sermon in Acts chapter 7, right? He doesn't want them thinking about that temple building. He wants them thinking about Jesus as the center of it all. So he's, you can see even in his earthly ministry, he's reorienting them away from the building. He's getting them away from thinking and being centered around the building. And, you know, Hebrews uses the word shadow to describe the sacrifices, the ceremonies. And one of the things that, you know, you're thinking about is is Jesus, this last week we were watching a video. uh, It's a video series by Tim Challies called Epic. Have any of you heard of it? Tim, do you know who Tim Challies is? No. Okay. Um, Tim Challies, he went to, he's just a Christian blogger who writes a lot and I, I like him. I appreciate him. He's a good brother in the Lord. And he went to Israel and... He visited the Wailing Wall, and one of the things you realize as you're seeing people there, I've never been there. Have any of you been to Israel and seen the Wailing Wall? All right, we got Alan, Sally, David, Benjamin. Um, I have not, but when I watch that video, I'm just daunted by the size of the wall. 
just how high it goes and how much higher it must have been before it was torn down. And if you're thinking about it, Jesus is standing in the shadow of this temple and the reality that Jesus wants them to understand is that the temple is actually the shadow of Jesus. This, this building here that's towering over me is actually the shadow of me. That's what Jesus is saying. So he's, he's reorienting their thinking about the temple. Um, think about the conversation with the woman at the well in John 4.20. Remember, he's talking to this woman and he talks to this woman about all of her husbands. And he's saying things that may convict her. Uh, of her sin and what does she want to argue with him about huh where to worship right the location for worship and and uh jesus jesus tells her something he says a true worshiper worships in spirit and in truth and he tells her that uh there's coming a day when they won't worship in jerusalem or anywhere they'll worship anywhere basically right jesus is saying true worship is going to happen in the hearts of people who love Christ. And he's telling them, true worship is going to take place in spirit and in truth. And he's basically saying this, look, if we are in Christ, we share the same status as the temple. Because he's saying that worship is going to happen in us now instead of in the temple. So even as he's, even as he's saying Jesus is the temple, he's also saying that in a sense, God's people are the temple. And he's getting them to think differently about worship. Um, Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? Um, So Paul is also moving them away from this temple-centered worldview towards realizing that the temple is wherever God's people are and wherever they're worshiping. Um, Another theme, again, this is not original with Jesus. I can't emphasize this enough. Um, This theme of mercy and not sacrifice when it comes to true worship. Um, Twice in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus responds to the Pharisees that it's right for him to associate with sinners, right? He's justifying why he sits and has meals with sinners. He's explaining these things. And he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Um, And so Jesus is teaching sort of, he's not teaching a unique thing here. He's just reiterating what the Old Testament prophets have said that God hated their offerings. He hated their sacrifices because they weren't given in love and they weren't given in what you might call spirit and in truth. Um, He says this in Isaiah. um, Jesus wants his people to know that God's highest priority is not that they go through the motions, but the motions of the heart. That's what he's saying to them. Um, It was always worship of the heart that they were meant that they were called to. Again, I am reiterating. This is not an invention of Jesus. It's not an innovation of Jesus, but he's just taking them back to these truths that they that they should have known and that they had forgotten. Now, let's talk about worship practices during the apostolic age, what we find in the book of Acts, especially and in the other epistles in the epistles. The practice of the early church was to gather for corporate worship immediately following the ascension of Jesus. We see this right away in the book of Acts chapter 2, where it says in Acts 2.42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. So just this long list of things that they devoted themselves to. Um, Let's talk about these things for a minute. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the apostolic teaching is a big theme of the early church and how they're worshiping. Uh, 
here we have, I actually wrote these things down so I wouldn't stand here and write them in bad handwriting. Um, which you would have definitely, well, this is still bad, but it could be worse. You've seen worse. Um, the first thing that they, that they mention is teaching, right? The text tells us that the church made the teaching of the apostles a regular part of their gatherings. Um, the text says they devoted themselves to it. That, I just love that phrase, they devoted themselves to it. That if you really want to spend some time asking yourself, the, you can ask yourself the question, am I devoted to the teaching of the apostles? Am I devoted to the word of God? Uh, I listen to it. I appreciate it. Am I devoted to it? Um, if you go to Acts chapter 6, where you see the diaconate of the church created in those first six verses, um, you see the elders need the deacons. And why do they need the deacons? Because the elders have something that's a very high priority that they, because they saw teaching as one of their primary responsibilities that they could not, under any circumstances, be distracted from. They see the, the calling to teach as very core to their mission. Um, and this is the thing, too. The church didn't need the, need the apostles in order to worship, but they did need their message. They didn't need the apostles in order to worship because the apostles plant a church. What do they do? They move on to the next town. They move on. But the message remains behind, right? They keep the message of the apostles. And then the men themselves are, they're dispensable. They really are. And all of us are dispensable. That's a great thing that for each preacher to, to remember and say out loud, and it's good to admit it. Um, yes? What's the difference then within the context of the, uh, the verses between teaching and preaching? Does it mean they were not preaching during these times? Mm. Um, I, think, I think that the apostolic teaching and preaching is probably the same thing. Okay. Although we today would distinguish the two. We would separate out. I, I mean, I would say that the preaching of the word is done by a teaching elder and the, the the two go hand in hand. You can't have preaching without teaching. I think you can have teaching without preaching. Does that sound confusing? And what's the difference? Like, like I'm teaching, but I'm not preaching right now. What's the difference? Um, oh, there's a, there's a philosophy of preaching uh, question to ask. <laughs> Alan, do you want to do the answer to that? <laughs> I just tossed Alan before they really baited me. Uh, how about this? How about this? Uh, um, uh, what did what did um, what did Martin Lloyd Jones call preaching? Logic on fire. So there you go. Le- preaching is logic on fire. Teaching is just logic. <laughs> so I'm only supposed to be so excited about what I'm teaching. And then it then it turns into preaching. So <laughs> I mean, someone can teach without preaching. Um, someone could be called to teach and not preach. Um, but you can't. You have you would have bad preaching if you, they, if there wasn't teaching involved. It's contentless preaching. You know, that's kind of what it would be. It would be contentless emoting is what it would be without teaching. Um, So the sermon for the early Christians, the sermon would have been an integral part of worship uh, in the Jewish synagogues. And then obviously when the Christians start meeting together, it's not like they're going to rip that out. No, they're going to make that a part of it. And they're not just preaching the apostles' uh, Message. They are also preaching the content of the Old Testament. They're, they're preaching all of the scriptures. Um, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, the second thing they mention is they're devoted to the fellowship. Um, this seems to be a reference to the close lives that they're living together. Uh, but now that they're together, the context indicates this fellowship means they live together in a kind of harmonious unity. Their lives are, are more bound up with each other than they were before. 
Um, now they are very much together in a sense that they're not together with unbelieving Jews, right? When they go into the synagogues, they still go into the synagogues and worship, but they're singing alongside of people who don't believe in the Messiah. They're singing alongside of people who, when they sing a psalm, uh, Psalm 22, for instance, they're, here, they're singing very different messages, right? The, the, the believing Christians are in the room and they're singing Psalm 22 and they hear Jesus in this psalm and they see Jesus in the psalm and they're praising Jesus when they sing it. And the Jewish people singing the same message would not have seen it that way at all. So you could see the division starting to happen in the synagogue. And so what happens? The Christians are fellowshipping together. They're sharing meals together. Uh, they're sharing their lives together. Um, they are united in a common faith, a common baptism, uh, a common worship, a uh, common observation of the, of the breaking of the bread. Uh, their prayers are being shared together. They're hearing the same apostolic preaching. And they're just, they have a common life together. And I think that's what the apostles are, I think that's what Acts, 20, Acts 2.42 means when it says that they had the fellowship. Now, it also mentions the breaking of bread. It mentions the sacraments. Um, in chapter 2, verse 42, it says, they observed the breaking of bread. Um, I think that this passage has all the makings of what we call the ordinary means of grace. I think they're all there. Calvin thought they were all there. There's a debate about whether the breaking of bread is different from breaking bread. Is the breaking of bread, is the breaking of bread the Lord's Supper? Or is it just breaking bread and sharing a meal together? And, and I think what you see in scripture is that breaking bread without the direct object, without the, I think that that's a reference just to sharing a meal. And when it refers to the breaking of bread, it's referring to the Lord's Supper. Um, so I think what's happening here is already um, Luke wants us to know they're observing the Lord's Supper when they're together. Um, they also observe something called the prayers. Uh, they use the, the plural here, the prayers, not just prayer in general, but something that's a regular practice that didn't just happen sort of as a one-time thing. We know from Acts one twenty four. we know from Acts 4.23 that Christians prayed corporately when they gathered together. That they didn't just do individual prayers, but they did it together as a group. Um, it might refer, and in fact I would suggest that it probably does refer to, the traditional prayers the Jews regularly recited. The Jewish temple held regular prayers every morning after the slaughter of the morning sacrifice and before the incense offering. There was a three o'clock hour of prayer in the temple as well. We know this from Josephus. Um, some of the scrolls from Qumran indicate that the priests recited the Shema and the Decalogue during the temple prayers. So it is possible that what Luke is saying here is that they devoted themselves to the prayers. They were either going to the temple to pray or they were praying wherever they found themselves, but they were praying during set times. There seems to be this, this consensus that in the early church, they were praying at set periods of time and that they were doing it at the same time as everyone else throughout the day. Um, obviously, we don't do that today. We kind of, we're a little more spontaneous, aren't we? Um, Eckerd Schnabel, it's a great name. Eckerd Schnabel, uh, he summarizes what we see in the early church's prayer practices and acts. So here's what, here's what he says. He says, the disciples waited in Jerusalem for the fulfillment of Jesus' promise of the Spirit while they were praying. So they're praying together and they're waiting. They prayed during the election of a 12th apostle in Acts 1.24. The healing of a lame man at one of the temple gates happened in connection with the prayer routine of the church leaders. 
the reaction of the Jerusalem church to external pressure and to God's intervention was to pray. Um, Prayer belonged to the fundamental priorities of the leadership of the church. Like in Acts 6, they say, not just that we should teach, but what else did they say we have to do? We have to pray. Um, The mission in Samaria was accompanied by prayer for the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 8. Um, You also have the conversion of Saul, which was linked with prayer in Acts chapter 9. And so I think you read the book of Acts, and one of the things you see is that the early Christians were a praying people who were given to crying out to God for all of their needs. Um, Another thing that you see in the early church is the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, that's not in this passage in Acts chapter 2, but we do know from Ephesians 5.19... And we know from Colossians 3.16 that the church got together and they sang psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, later on, we're going to talk about the specifics of what that refers to. Is this saying that we should sing psalms and hymns? Or is this just saying we should sing psalms and, we should, and they're just saying it three different ways? Um, that's a debate that people do have. We'll touch on it later, but much later in the class. Um, We have evidence within Paul's letters. I'm going to suggest, I'm going to dip my toes into that discussion a little bit and just suggest this, that you have the early church singing songs that are not psalms. You have um, evidence that within Paul's letters that there is hymnody in the church besides just the psalms. Um, You have these poetic statements in Paul's letters, which he seems to be quoting a familiar passage that the others in the church know that they're familiar with. And he's, and he's and basically what you're seeing is evidence of hymnody within the church, not just singing psalms, but singing hymns. Um, and by the way, this makes sense because if you read the psalms, the psalms absolutely speak of Jesus, but they don't speak of him by name. Um, the psalms, if you just sing the psalms, you don't say the name of Jesus aloud. Um, I think it's reasonable that some of, of the, the songs of the early church were meant to be sung as accompaniments to the Psalter, where you're singing a psalm, and then what do you do? You sing a hymn to Jesus, almost as a way of saying, this is a fulfillment of what we just sang. Jesus is the fulfillment of that song. So you see Christ now becomes an interpreter of the psalms, and the psalms end up giving us Jesus. And so that, that's what you, I think, see in the early church. I think that's why Paul has these hymns to Jesus embedded throughout his, his, uh, his letters to the church. Um, now, they would not have given those hymns the same authority as Scripture. You know, the, uh, if somebody writes a song that's not from Scripture, you're not going to say, well, see, this is, this is alongside of the Psalter. Um, now, Paul cheats a little bit because he puts it in one of his letters, and now we know that's Scripture. So, you know, you could actually sing the song of Philippians chapter 2, and you would be singing scripture, and you could sing it alongside of the Psalms. Um, We are going to talk in the next lesson, which I don't know if it'll be next week. Probably not next week. It'll be the week after, because we're not going to get through all of this today. Um, But we're going to talk in in the early church about the kind of songs that they sang um, in the early church. So we will get to some, some of the psalmody in the early church. We're gonna, I'm going to try to focus on that each, each time. So as we move forward in church history, I want to look at the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that people are singing during these time periods. Um, another thing that you see in the New Testament is, that's part of the public worship is the giving of offerings. So in Acts chapter 5, what do the people do? They sell their belongings and they offer them to God's people. 
And this is done in a public way. That's why Ananias and Sapphira's sin is a publicly known sin. Because they do it in a way that's public so that people will see. Which indicates people are giving money in public. People are giving money and presumably as part of their worship to the Lord. And that's what makes this so offensive to God. That Ananias and Sapphira are deceptive in the way that they give. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul is taking up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Not unlike what we're going to do next week, actually. Right? Next week, our plan is to take up a special offering during the Lord's Supper. And, and the plan is that we're going to take that money and we're going to send it to Mission to the World, I believe, is the missions organization it's going to go to. And that's going to be given for the benefit of who? Saints in Turkey. Right? The city of Antioch has been just shaken to the ground. We have a, a pastor that was a pastor of an evangelical church in Antioch who he and his wife both died. And their eight-year-old son, Yoel, has survived. And here these brothers and sisters in Antioch are, the place where people were first called Christians. And I think what we're going to be doing next Sunday is a reflection of Acts of 1 Corinthians 16, where they say, you know what? These brothers and sisters from of old, this is where we come from. Um, we owe them a debt to, in mm-hmm. some sense, right? Paul says that about the saints in Jerusalem. And I think we could say that about Antioch, mm-hmm. um, like the actual Antioch, not like Antioch, Mississippi or something like that. <laughs> the Antioch. <laughs> um, that's what he does. And so he says, but here's what he does. He gives instructions on how to take that up. And he says that you should meet on the first day of the week and that you should have everything all together and be prepared to give it on that day. Um, He wants that offering given on that specific day. And so Paul seems to see giving money as a way of glorifying God as a means of worship. And it appears that's what the early church did, that they actually took up offerings uh, for the blessing of one another and for the glory of God. Um. The New Testament gives us an important window into the, into the early worship of this, this infant church, this brand new church. And from the earliest days of the, of the church, what happens? The ordinary means of grace are being observed by the church. They're getting together. They're gathering each week. Um, the gathering of the word of the people, the preaching of the word, the observance of the sacraments, the singing of praise to God, the regular practice of prayer. And all of these are what we would call the ordinary means of grace. Um, when we, uh, in the next lesson, when we talk about the early church, I'm going to share with you a quote from Justin Martyr. And one thing you will hear Justin Martyr do is him describing the worship of Christians and what it is they do when they gather together. And the thing that's so striking is it's basically all of this. It's basically all of this. All of this is familiar. And Justin is basically saying that by 150, when he writes, when he writes his letters, um, this stuff is all happening. So you don't see a big divergence. It's not like all of a sudden they start doing wild stuff within the first hundred years that the early church wasn't doing. Like they keep on these practices of being devoted to these things. Um, Justin also calls Sunday the Lord's Day. Uh, and we're going to start, we're, we start seeing that too, that because Jesus rose again, because uh, he uh, because the first day of the week is believed to be the, you know, the day of creation, then, well, it is the day of creation, then the argument of the early church was, this is why we meet on Sundays. We meet on Sundays because it's the day that Jesus was raised up. Basically, Jesus takes ownership of the first day of the week. Mm-hmm. Now, the early Christians are still attending synagogue services. 
Um, you see them involved in the synagogue. You see Stephen in Acts chapter 6 disputing with leaders of the synagogue. Um, he had, by that time, he had not separated himself from the synagogue. He still saw himself as part of that. Um, whenever possible, Paul is doing his mission work. And what is he doing? He's going to the synagogues. Um, Apollos preached in the synagogue in Acts chapter 18. And who is in the audience there but Priscilla and Aquila? And they see this guy and they realize, hey, this guy's got some rough edges. We need to talk to him. And so that's where they run into him, though. They meet him in the synagogue. And so at this early phase, think of this. Christians still had a hearing in some of the synagogues. Now, here's what happens. Christians get expelled from the synagogues when they get discovered. The first place you see it is John chapter 9, verse 22. It says the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So that's John 9, 22, where you first see it. It's the earliest moment, I think, when, in the text where you find that. Paul separates himself from the synagogue in Corinth. It appears that he's driven away. You see that in Acts 18. And then here's what happens. After the fall of Jerusalem, and when's the fall of Jerusalem? What's the year? 70. 70 AD. The fall of Jerusalem happens. Here's what goes on. The Jewish leaders become much more openly hostile to Christians. Um, if you look in the Talmud, the, the Talmud includes a prayer from after 70 AD that was meant to be read and prayed publicly in the synagogues. Listen to this prayer. They were supposed to pray this in the synagogues. For the apostates, let there be no hope. Let the arrogant government be speedily uprooted in our days. Let the heretics be destroyed in a moment. And let them be blotted out of the book of life and not be inscribed together with the righteous. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who humblest the arrogant. And so um, this made the expulsion of Christians from synagogues official. Um, if you were in a synagogue as a Christian and you thought up to that point, you know, it's okay for me to be here. I understand these things very differently than them, but we're still worshiping God. I'm still in continuity with these people. Well, here they are now. Now they're basically telling you in the worship services, you are no longer welcome here. Do not come into this place. So they make that part of the persecution. Remember, what does Jesus say? They're going to persecute you. They're going to drag you into the synagogues. They're going to flog you. And we see officially that these things took place. Um, Christians also, when this happened, culturally, historically, we know that they then lost their Jewish exemption from the Roman emperor. Until that time, Christians were seen as a sect of the Jews, and the Jews had an exemption in Rome. You could be in Rome, you could be a Jew, you could have synagogues, you could worship. And they looked at the Christians and the Jews, and what they saw was squabbling within their own house, basically. And so the Romans... Several times you see this in the book of Acts. The Gentile governors are not interested at all in becoming part of these debates. They don't want to sort these things out for the Jews. They're like, these are your problems, right? This is, this is not the sort of thing you want us getting involved in, which I would agree with. Um, but then they get kicked out. They are now separated in a visible way from Jewish people. And what happens? Christians do not have an exemption from the Roman governors. Uh, and so that's when persecution takes place. That's why Nero is able to persecute Christians because they are visibly recognized as no longer being part of the Jewish church. Um, so we already talked about the synagogue. We talked about the influence on Christian worship. Um, 
I just want to emphasize one more time that the synagogue worship had essential elements that were retained by Christians in some way. They had the reading of scripture, which Christians kept. They had the chanting or the singing of the Psalter, which the Christians kept. They had prayer as a part of their public service, which the Christians kept. They had teaching and preaching from the word. Christians kept that, of course. They had public confession of faith. Remember, in the synagogues, they would recite the Shema. Um, They would recite confessions of Judaism. Um, Christians kept that as well. Um, One major addition to this by the Christians, though, was what? What is the one specific thing that the Jews did not do? They did not have a Lord's Supper in Judaism. They just did not have a, a Lord's Supper in Judaism. And so this is one thing that's, that's new. Now you see pictures of the Lord's Supper in the fellowship meal that they have in the temple. When they do burnt sacrifices, when they have the fellowship offerings, there's, there are bits and pieces of this. But now it becomes something you would never have done that in a synagogue. You wouldn't have had a worship. You would not have had a sacrifice take place in the synagogue. That synagogue would get torn to the ground if somebody tried doing that. Um, we notice a few other things here. Um, actually, I'm going to go ahead and talk about preaching in the New Testament. We have some time, so I'm going to go ahead and move into the apostolic preaching, what it was like, some features of it. Um, by the way, there is no book on the subject of preaching in the history of the church that is better than the one by Hughes Oliphant Old. Hughes Oliphant Old, um, he wrote a seven-volume set on the reading and preaching of the scriptures in the history of the Christian church. And we had to read the volume on the Reformation when I was in seminary. I say had to, and I say that very loosely. It is a wonderful book where he basically goes through and he mingles together the history with the actual preaching. And he gives you a taste of what preaching was really like in these times. When did the Lord Jesus Christ preach and not teach? When did he preach and not teach? I No, no, no. You can't have preaching without teaching. You can have teaching without preaching. Okay, but when did he preach then? When did he? In, 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 in yeah. the uh, Gospels. I mean, I think, all of, I think all of his public teaching was preaching probably. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at any of it. I mean, maybe when someone asks him a question and he answers it, I'm not sure I would call that preaching, right? right, right. Uh, what are we supposed to do with this denarius? And he says, give it to Caesar that which is Caesar's. I mean, that's teaching. I wouldn't call that preaching. Right. So, maybe. Um, actually, Hughes Oliphant Old does a wonderful job of going through the preaching of Jesus in the New Testament and dissecting some of these. So, a lot of the stuff that he talks about, I'd never heard of. I, I had never heard of some of this, um, the stuff we're going to talk to in the coming weeks. Um, I, hadn't, I didn't know some of these sermons even existed. And he does a wonderful job of picking them apart and showing the features of them. So a lot of what I say in each of these lessons, when we get to a certain time period, and then I start talking about preaching during a certain time, I probably got it from Hughes Oliphant Old. And I'm telling you that in advance so that I don't have to keep saying it over and over again. But I want to give credit where credit's due. There's just nothing like that seven-volume set. Um, and I've not read every word of it. Um, I haven't read his – he's got two, two, two volumes just on modern preaching, and I, I just haven't looked at them. Um, my world stops at the Reformation, so everything after that I don't care about. Um, so let's talk about Jesus as a preacher. 
We've got five minutes to, to dip our toes into it, and then we can actually get more specific. So Jesus was a preacher. He preached in synagogues. He preached all through Judea and Galilee. Um, he preached wherever he had an opportunity or a place where people are gathered. He preached in informal settings. He didn't just go to a synagogue where everyone's sitting down and waiting, but he would go to a hillside. Um, he would be outdoors. Um, he would be in the courts of the temple and he would preach. Um, and it, preaching was his primary ministry to people. It was the thing that he said that he came to do. He came to proclaim. He came to preach. And he says that on multiple occasions in the New Testament. Um, he preaches in the temple. By the way, we don't know what the norms of preaching in the temple were. We don't know what the rules were. Um, but we know this, that people preaching in the courts of the temple were an ordinary part of temple life. That you could go into the temple and you could see someone standing off to the side and people gathered around him and listening to his teaching or listening to his loud preaching. Um, they would use their loud outdoor voices and they would usually, they would be explaining the scriptures. And that's what Jesus does. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is, is uh, telling a parable and he's telling the parable of the tenants. And he's doing it as a way of introducing his sermon on Psalm 118. Um, Jesus also preached on Psalm 110. Um, Hughes Old summarizes Jesus' preaching this way. He says, it was expository preaching, which was for Jesus, above all, proclamation. It proclaims that the promises of God have been kept and the scriptures have been fulfilled for the kingdom is at hand. So this is like the, the thematic repetition in Jesus' sermons. Um, you know, most of, most of my sermons, I hope, always go back to Jesus. And for Jesus, all of his sermons go back to him too. <laughs> for Jesus, all of his sermons go back to the kingdom of God is here. You know, um, here's what else would happen in the temple. He, he would be in the temple and people would answer, ask him questions. They would, they would say, what about this? And that actually became his established teaching. Oftentimes the answers that he gives end up becoming the, temp, the, the teaching that he's known for. Um, Jesus is making a proclamation of objective truth. Um, he's not just stating his opinion of things, but he speaks authoritatively when he talks. Uh, he explains Old Testament texts and then proclaims that they've taken place. Um, Mark 1.14, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what do you have there? You have an indicative. The time is at hand. This is true. This is happening. And then he's got an application for it, right? He says, because of that, do this. Repent and believe the gospel. So he's got the classic form of the let's say what's true and then let's say what we should do about it. Jesus is doing that in his preaching. Um, he followed the tradition of the preaching of the prophets. Remember, I mentioned to you before that in the synagogues, what would they do? They would read from the law of Moses and then they would follow it up by reading from the prophets. And they saw their reading from the prophets as being a commentary on the law of Moses. Jesus sees himself in that line too. He's like, I'm going to open the word and I'm going to explain to you what it says there. Um, preaching, the worship, preaching in the worship of Israel was very important. It occupied this place. It was, it was filling in the, the place of the prophets. Um, they were those who, the, who took God's law and spoke words of application. You know what God has said. Here's what you're to do. 
And people just need that. People actually do need application in their lives. They don't, they don't just need to hear what's true. They need to hear what that means for them. They need to hear why they're supposed to do these things. And Jesus was a master of illustration and a master of application as well. He was really good at giving applications. Um, he was also a trainer of preachers. So if you read Mark 3, you see Jesus models preaching. And then what does he do on the tails of his preaching? He sends them out. And he tells them to follow his model. Um, he sends them out like Elijah, right? They're supposed to go out and they're supposed to depend on what the birds bring them, right? They're supposed to depend on the hospitality of other people. He's, he's giving them this very prophetic uh, approach to it. They think of themselves the way that I, Elijah did. He was completely dependent on God to feed him and care for him. And that's what he's telling the disciples to do as well. Um. I don't want to go any further into the preaching of Jesus. We're going to next, next time, uh, next week. But for now, I'm just going to end by praying. And then uh, we, will, we are not far away from having lunch, I think. Um, but usually this is the part where Erin's standing in the doorway and looks at me and makes it sound like she's ready. Um, but let me pray. And then, and then uh, let's just... Keep going next week and look more at the preaching of Jesus. And then we'll look at the preaching of the apostles. When we finish with that, we will move to the early church. And we'll start getting into more foreign territory, I think, to a lot of us. We'll start getting into this stuff where you're like, wow, I had no idea. I had no idea. Um, Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came preaching and proclaiming your kingdom that you spoke your objective, objective truth that your people needed to hear, that you told us what we should do because these things were true. And so we are grateful that you have not left us to guess. You've not left us to feel around in the dark. Uh, you've not left us to wonder what you are like or what your father is like or what the spirit is like, but rather you have revealed them to us. And so we thank you that you use preaching to do that. You use it even today. And we pray that you would make us faithful to you, that you would make me faithful as a preacher, that you would make your people faithful as listeners. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.